Um, so turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19, and I'll read, starting in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of transgression. Let the word of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider this psalm, Lord, we do lift up your name because you are mighty. Lord, you are creator. You are the first cause of all things. Lord, we worship you because of that. So we see how you are generally revealed in nature and in your creation, Lord, and it reveals and it shouts of your majesty and your glory, and you are worthy of our praise because of it. Lord, also we can see in your word and your law and your statutes how you have specifically revealed yourself to us, and you've done that, Lord, and you've chosen to do that through a book, Lord, that we can understand who you are. Lord, what great truths there are in this book, Lord, that we can be reconciled through you or to you through the perfect, sinless life and the sacrifice of Jesus. Lord, may we meditate on that all the days, Lord. Lord, you are worthy of our praise. And as we look to the history of your church, Lord, and even today, Lord, as we look at things that are um, doctrinally impure, things that, Lord, um, caused a great stir in the Protestant community in the 20th century, Lord, Lord, I pray that you would help us focus our eyes on that which is true and those things that you've revealed to us through your word. Lord, it's, we can only do that by the power of your spirit. We pray that you would strengthen us today. Thank you for bringing us here. May we glorify you as we listen and as I teach. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, okay, so like I said, this is our second section. And today I wanted to get into, and then next week as well, um, some theological trends at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, your outline, I kind of, I gave you a lot of space. Um, and there's a couple changes because I woke up this morning and didn't like the way I worded some things. We'll, we'll get to those as they go. Um, but in the part where it says the secularization of society, I just left a lot of places for you to write because I had so many notes there, and I didn't, I didn't want to uh, overwhelm you with five pages. And uh, same with these people on the second page. I just left you notes to talk about who they are and what their contributions were to modern liberal theology. And hopefully that's, that'll be helpful for you. Um, um, as we, as the, one of the main things we talked about last time we talked about D.L. Moody and the idea of a Protestant America. And we saw that kind of as the end of an age in American Christianity that um, 
the, the time of Moody and the dawn of the 20th century saw that the Protestant, Protestantism has lost its overarching uh, value in American society. And, and now it's become a little bit more secular. Um, so that the major points we're going to look at, look at today are, first, the overarching thing is the rise of modern, modernists or liberalists or liberalism in theology. Um, but first, we've got to go back and just barely touch on the Enlightenment and then other, the, the initial uh, uh, liberal thoughts in Germany in the 19th century, 18th and 19th century. And then we'll talk about just the general secularization, secularity of society in uh, America. We'll have several points on that. And then we'll actually outline the modernist or the liberal views in America. And then what I'm going to call now the evangelical response. Um, I hope we can get through all this. I, we'll see. Usually I have like four pages of notes, and I have six. So that's okay. We'll get to that next week. So, All right. So first of all, we need to understand there's, this, there's evangelical um, a belief system that we, we all here at Calvary Bible Church would hold to, and that is you know, there's, there's core values of Christianity that we would hold to. Yet in the 20th century, we kind of see that foundation eroding um, through certain theological methods. Um, and those are expressly um, rooted in the Enlightenment in the 1700s. Um, that's the age of reason, the, the, the idea that society can be reformed through reason instead of religion or tradition or the revelation, which is the scriptures. The Enlightenment places a major emphasis on science as the basis of fact. It will be a major scientific breakthrough that we'll talk about in the 19th century. Um, and also the Enlightenment was very influential in both the American and French revolutions. The French Revolution, uh, reason and the Enlightenment really replaces God. And in the American Revolution, it is a tool as part of uh, the American Revolution, while America still holds to the Protestantism of the people that founded it for the most part. Um, so that's the Enlightenment. So there's this first big change in, I guess, philosophy. And how does that affect theology? In the main center of uh, the using this Enlightenment view, which becomes a liberal view, is in Germany, which is pretty shocking, considering Germany, two and a half centuries before, was the center of the Reformation. Um, that's where Martin Luther came, and that's where, in Germany, he protests against the, uh, the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church and separates, actually, from the Roman Catholic Church in the Reformation. So in the German School of Theology, the first note you have here, there's a man by the name of Francis Schleiermacher. I went ahead and put that in your notes so you didn't have to spell it. Being a Scheffler, I can spell that. But, um, who lived from 1768 to 1834. And he is, and I didn't give you enough room here if you're blank, but it's okay. He's the father, and father of modern theology or the father of liberalism. So he's either the probably more appropriate to call it liberal theology. And he embraced a rational, critical view of the scriptures which emphasized the subjective inner feeling of the believer over the historic doctrinal revelation in the scriptures. And we've talked about this Schleiermacher and a few other people when we talked about the birth of liberalism, but we need to go back and visit what they believed. 
This is what Schleiermacher says, and you have the quote there. Christianity is not ideas, not creeds, not propositions, and not a book like the Bible. It is not in knowledge or ethics. It is not simply in being good. Christianity, or religion, is located in religious consciousness or in the feelings, not in the head or in the outward conduct. The heart and core of Christianity is what one feels deep within his or her own being. It's kind of an experiential view of Christianity. Um, not some, some obvious things he didn't mention is Christianity is, doesn't say anything about Jesus. doesn't say anything about God. It doesn't say anything about man needing to be reconciled to God because of his sinful state. So you can see where we're going here, a little bit more emphasis on humanity. Second person um, in the German school of theology was important was a man by the name of F.C. Bauer. I can spell Bauer, B-A-U-R for you guys. And he developed a historical critical method to analyzing the scriptures. So really coming from the basis that the scriptures need to be proven as true and that he uh, was skeptic that they actually were. He led a group that rejected the veracity of the Bible and also wanted to discover the authorship of each book, thinking that as you identified the author, um, that you would be able to get a better grasp of what they were trying to say, which to some degree is true. Um, but his was almost in a way to reject the church's tradition as to the authorship of the scriptures. Um, and his belief allowed for the textual corruption of the Bible at that time, and that even into our day. Um, so to some degree, he is rejecting the scriptures that have been canonized for centuries that we know about um, and is going back and placing them in different uh, categories. So there's a, this school of thought does cross over from uh, Germany into England, and England is influenced by it. But the most important thing coming out of England at this time, or tragic thing, I guess, however you want to say it, is in 1859, uh, Charles Darwin writes The Origin of Species, which theorized that man and all of life was the result of evolution. In a sense, it rejected one of the chief arguments for the existence of God, which is the argument from design. So one of the reasons you can argue that God exists is because he designed this earth, right? Um, and then once Darwin comes into the play and says man is just the result of natural causes and not God, takes out the underpinnings of the fact that God designed everything. So Darwin's views were held by some, some of his followers, notably Herbert Spencer and Thomas Huxley. And they applied Darwinism to actually an entire philosophy of life. And they saw Christianity as primitive and that modern culture was much more sophisticated to hold to the primitive views of Christianity and that humanity had advanced from that simple state to a more complex state. So yeah, so religion, you know, it's important. It's kind of a coping mechanism for people at that time. You know, but hey, man, we're humans, and we, we've advanced all this. We've done all these things. We've progressed. We're going through the Industrial Revolution, you know, and we, we have a, a class structure, and we have a middle class now, and everything's changing in society. And, you know, with this, we can, it's about time we toss out this religious thing. You know, it's just full of mysteries and things that don't really happen. Um, it's very, there's too much emphasis on things that we don't rationally believe could happen. That is the, uh, that's the idea of Huxley and Spencer with, uh, with 
reporting uh, Darwin's views into a whole philosophy of life. So the influence of the Enlightenment, um, the growth of modern liberalism, and the Darwinian views negatively affected the church's health in Europe, including some of the areas most profoundly responsible for the Reformation in the 16th century. So of course these views don't just stay in Europe. They make their way over the Atlantic to America. Um, and really, you can see that these views found their way into the evangelical churches in the late 1800s. Not to say that the Enlightenment or liberal views did not exist. We know that Thomas Jefferson was, not, was an enlightened thinker, and Thomas Paine was as well, and Benjamin Franklin was a deist. Um, but the general view of the country supported the traditional doctrines of the Bible. So as I stated last time, the 1800s and the time of Moody was really the end of Protestant America. From about 1920 to the current day, historic evangelical, evangelicalism in America was, is, was not the only dominant view um, for culture. Two other things came up. One was secularism. We'll talk about that. And also the Protestant wing of uh, e opposite of evangelicalism, which is modern liberal theology. Evangelical still has a voice. It's just not the dominant voice in American society. So how does that play out? <clears throat> All right, the secularization of society. Um, it's, it, it would be consistent to say that for the most part, through most of the history of Western society after Christ, um, there was a dominant view uh, an understanding of what the scriptures said and understanding of who God was. Yet, uh, Sec the, the idea of the secular society kind of arose in the late 1900s and the early 20th century. The first way that this happened was through philosophical influence. So I have four points for you here. You can just note them here however you want. And these, there was three major philosophical influences of the 19th century that affected the 20th century. We already mentioned one that was Darwin, obviously with his understanding of evolution and the origin of life, his theory. Another one was Karl Marx, who believed that the condition of man was the product of his social environment. So the condition of man, according to the scriptures, is that he's sinful and he's in need of a savior, um, not because of his environment. Um, but that would, in that thought, Marx kind of questions the, the uh, idea of the doctrine of sin. And the third person is Sigmund Freud, the father of modern psychology, who stated that the unconscious, he believed in the unconscious realm and the rejection of sin, which was replaced by the idea of repression. Um, so people acted based on repressed events from previous experiences in their life. And each of these represent major tenets of secularism and impacted the society's view on God, man, and the need for salvation. So you can see how that's affecting society. It's, it's, it's eroding that understanding of the biblical truth Another thing that happened in America was there's the centrality of urban life. So this is really point number two. You don't have enough room, so find a way to note these things. So life had transitioned from small-town rural society into urban life. Here's a statistic to consider that. In 1879, almost 10 million people lived in towns of fewer than 2,500 people. By 1930, 69 million people did. And by percentage, it's percentages based on how many people lived in 
um, these places versus the total population went from 26% to 56%. So the, the society is now moving from a smaller, so you're in a smaller society and circle of people probably hold to a little bit more common ideals. I mean, we all kind of, we all have a, an affection probably for small town life. Um, and you can see how that helped impact um, the changing society. Um, it was the smaller town and rural life that had held Protestantism, held to the Protestantism of the early republic. In the larger urban context, there was greater commercial interest, more so than in the, um, in the smaller communities. There's increased college-level education, which we'll talk about in a second, more diverse cultures and religious views, and all of these impacted the evangelical influence in American life. So in general, the distractions of city life also resulted in inattention to one's spiritual needs. So as you, you know, we all can relate to that, I'm sure. Um, the third thing that attributed to the secularization of society was the modern university. Here we go. Uh, <laughs> um, the modern university really began in the, now obviously, remember the, I've, I've talked before, a lot of the Ivy League schools were founded by Christian organizations or Christian denominations. Um, but there's, a, there's new universities started in the late 1800s, and they were funded by two different groups. One, the federal government began to um, create federal land-grant um, um, schools, universities. And then second, there was private universities. You just start thinking about the private universities in our country. They're generally named after very wealthy, uh, capitalistic-minded men of the 19th century. Um, Vanderbilt, Johns Hopkins, Stanford, and Duke all were started by supremely wealthy men of the oil, rail, railroad, and tobacco industries. Um, and also Rockefeller helped start a university as well, I think Union University in New York. Um, so really, the there's this idea these these super wealthy men are being involved in starting universities. And most universities prior to that were the result, were started by churches. So to some degree, there was an idea of Christianity in them, albeit some of them incorrect. Um, so these men, the Rockefellers, Vanderbilts, Dukes, and Stanfords, um, and, and their bus they put businessmen as the trustees over the schools, where in the past it was pastors and clergymen. Um, and their focus at these schools was on the advancement of the good life and focusing on free choice and personal consumption. So they're trying to mold the society of consumers to some degree. Um, whereas the prior universities maybe had more of a concern about the moral uplift of society. Because the American British model of education versus the German emphasized a little bit more of character formation. So by, by 1930, 12% of Americans, I'm guessing men, didn't check this, ages 18 to 21 attended universities. That's up from 2% in 1870. So you can see a dramatic shift in the fact that these people are being educated. Now, nothing wrong with education, right? I mean, we, we want people to be educated. They're going to be, but the, the problem is, are they, what are they being educated to do or to believe? So they... These new universities didn't accept the, the uh, historic British or American view of education, yet, but they accepted the German 
seminar model. And in that philosophy, and in the American universities at the time, it was suggested that unbelief that was found in new ideas was just as acceptable as belief. So it was in their education system, it was acceptable to question everything um, that, had, uh, that the Bible and that Christianity and Protestantism had taught. Um, the German model accepted specialized advanced scholarship that was free from what they would call sectarian control. Uh, one gentleman by the name of Andrew Dickinson White said that the purpose of the university was to afford an asylum for science where truth shall be sought for truth's sake, where it shall not be the main purpose of the faculty to stretch or cut sciences exactly to fit revealed religion. So this idea that religion, and primarily Christianity, and the um, is subversive to true science because science has told us now that man came out of nothing and evolved from whatever it evolved from and the Bible teaches us something contradictory to that and we've accepted this as a scientific truth so the Bible stands in contrast to that. So that, that idea impacted um, society for sure. Um, there's a new emphasis of course on science in the light of Darwin. The universities embraced Darwin's followers view that Darwin, Darwinian evolution was a basis for a whole new philosophy. Christianity, again, in this view, is primitive. It helped the primitive to cope, but it needed to be evaluated in the light of this new philosophy. Interesting thought I had was that the new universities had not really become irreligious, but they had replaced God and his real, revealed authoritative word with science. So there's still a, an aspect of, of, of faith there in, in, to some of, some, in some view. One sociologist at the time said the following. He said, at a time of faltering theological conviction, the universities were able to become heirs to the churches. So there's, a, there's, a, there's a gap here where the church has failed and the universities have picked up. Um, so we've talked about the philosophical influences that led to the secularization of society, the impact of urban life, the uh, beginnings of the modern university, and next we'll talk about the fact that a new philosophy when it comes to the Bible had occurred. It was called the historical criticism of the Bible. So that's the fourth point in the secularization of society. Sorry about the space. Um, so the historical criticism of the Bible. This occurred when there became an increased knowledge of ancient culture, cultures, and it caused um, people to question the uniqueness and authority of the Bible. Historical critics believe that the Bible needed to be understood based on the views of its authors, and it led to the questioning of the miraculous recorded in the scriptures. So the guy we talked about earlier, F.C. Bauer, he's a historical critic. Um, they would believe that with a more thorough understanding of ancient writings, the biblical texts were actually written much later than what the church tradition had believed. This method, along with the views of religious authority and revelation, transformed the Bible from the unquestioned foundation for truth to a problem which needed further examination under the microscope of modern thought. So definitely taking away the authority of what the Bible is uh, were the historical critics. So that's kind of the background of secularization of society. So those are the views that are impacting society as a whole and making it, turning it from less Protestant or um, faith-centered to more liberal. 
So somebody, so at some point, Protestants have to say, are we going to follow this line of thinking, or are we going to break away completely from this? And then some followers decide they'd find, to some degree, some sort of middle way and wanted to accept the, these liberal views. I'm going to call those folks the modernists. So there were modernists in, in Protestantism. I can stay away from liberal because in this political climate, you know, I just don't want y'all to get confused with certain policies of certain parties or whatever. Um, there wasn't it was it when was that when uh, was it George H. W. Bush referred to liberal as the L word or something like that or I don't know, but we'll just not worry about that. Um, so the modernists are defined as those Protestants who felt it was necessary for the Christian faith to adjust self-consciously to the norms defining modern culture. They believe God is best understood as working within human societies, and so they were convinced that the evolving shape of modern life, as well as in the developments in learning, conveyed the realization of God's work in the world. Okay, so um, how are we going to tie this biblical faith with these modern views? We don't want to come across as... Uh, non-intellectual. We'd hate for that to happen. So, um, these these modernists were influenced first in America by a man by the name of Horace Bushnell, and he questioned the authority of the scriptures. He believed that the scriptures and then the traditional creeds of Christianity were more to be thought of as poetry than precise descriptive language. So, if we're you know we're not going to take the Bible for what it says it says. Um, but really, we should, there's, there's something more. There's, it's something we need to feel a little bit more. He believed that traditional jo- doctrine should be reformatted to emphasize four things. Intuition, human potential, social progress, and the redemptive potential of the world. No Jesus, no God, no sin, no man's need for a Savior. Um, years later, a congrega- congregationalist pastor, Theodore Munger, believed that these modern views were just revisions of the faith, not rejections. He uh, created a new theology in saying that the Christian faith had come together now with these true laws of nature to form one truth. So he sees them coming together. In the univo- oh, excuse me, in the universities, this is where the this is shocking to all of y'all know. This is where the liberal movement um, reached its fullest potential. Uh, at Union Seminary, a man by the name of Arthur Cushman McGivert, who was German-trained, he stressed in his theology the centrality of the life of Christ. So the centrality of the life of Christ, that what Jesus did as he lived, you know, what his ethic, or what he taught, he, that's what he emphasized, a commitment to the scientific theory and an allegiance to social ethics. He believed that Paul's ideals and the epistles were actually contrary to those of Christ. It's kind of like, you know, this is, we hear this a lot and thought that Paul just kind of took a part of what Jesus said and he kind of formatted Christianity on his own. And really, the ultimate problem there is, is an issue of authority. I mean, the ultimate thing is that we should see all of Scripture as one unifying thing explaining what God has done and how he's revealed himself. Um, um, he believed that Paul overemphasized the deity of Christ and placed two much emphasis on the value of the church. These are very troubling things. Um, so I don't believe in these guys. Let's just be clear here. 
And at the University of Chicago, a man by the name of Shaler Matthews wrote a book called The Faith of Modernism. He believed that Christian doctrines had to be changed in order to fit in changed to be more like the modern ideas in order for it to survive. So he's he's concerned about the overall survival of Christianity. Not true Christianity, but a Christianity that fits into the model of the modern liberal. Um, he thought that the traditional doctrines were unable to address the issues of the day facing modern man. One of the things at this time was this separation between the super wealthy and the poor. So there's this, this strife between the classes. So that's a, that's a big issue that uh, Matthews tries to talk about. He says he railed against those who held to the traditional doctrines when he said, the world needs new control of nature in society. And it is told that the Bible is verbally inerrant. So he's saying these doctrines don't answer these questions, in his opinion. It needs a means of composing class strife, and it is told to believe in the substitutionary atonement. It needs faith in the divine presence in human affairs, and it is told it must accept the virgin birth of Jesus. So his, he just rails against these historic fundamental views of the Bible and of Christianity and saying that there is no solution in this book for these modern problems. And as evangelicals and as Christians, we know that's not true. We know that the answers for all of life and godliness are found in this book. But he did not believe that. So I've summarized on number 11 on your notes. I'm going to get through this. All right. Some of the views that the modernists considered. So when I say modernists, let's just be clear. A modernist is a liberal. It's the same thing. So... You know, it's the, they are called liberal Protestants as well. I, when somebody's a Protestant, they are holding to certain things about Christianity. And since they reject some of those things, I would per, prefer just to call them modernists and not Protestants. Okay? That's my judgment on them. Um, the one thing they emphasized was Jesus as a moral teacher, which we agree. Jesus is a moral teacher, but we don't exalt Jesus as a moral teacher over the fact that he lived a righteous, perfect life, that he was fully God as well. Um, but they want to point out that Jesus was a moral teacher and he was a religious genius. So how is he much different than Buddha or Confucius or somebody else? The Bible itself is great literature. It's worthy of our study. Well, yeah, of course it's great literature. Well, the author of the Bible is God. He's inspired it. Um, it is inerrant. They did not believe that. They believed it was great literature. So how does the Bible get separated from Homer? Or how does the Bible get separated from, I don't know, pick your great work of the Renaissance age. It's just one of many, isn't it? But no, it's, it's authoritative and it's God's word. Uh, they denied the virgin birth and deity of Christ, once again. To pick on our favorite founding father, Thomas Jefferson, when he read the Bible, he decided he's going to write his own Bible, and he took out all the miraculous stuff. Um, um, not really our favorite founding father, but favorite enlightened one. Um, <clears throat> he took out all the things that he possibly reasonably, rationally could not understand that would really happen. That's a lot. That's a big chunk of the Bible. I mean, Brent better not preach today if you guys haven't been there, because it's about Daniel and the lion's den, the fact that the lion's, you know, didn't eat Daniel. I mean, that's... That's miraculous and it's unbelievable, and it shows that God is involved in um, the matters of man. Um, they denied man's sinfulness, 
probably not all of man's sinfulness, but probably the idea that man enters this world completely sinful and is in need of a Savior as soon as he's born. So when they do that, they also reject the need for Christ's atoning sacrifice. As the guy we said earlier, who said that there's an issue with class strife and they're told to believe in the substitutionary atonement. Yes, absolutely they are. You need to understand that God has made a way for us to um, come to him. And it's through the atonement of Christ. Um, they denied the divine inspiration of the Bible. This is pretty much the big one. And this is the one that um, probably it still divides today. I mean, this is these liberal modernist views of Christianity are still at work today. There's probably a lot more secularization than there is modernism. Um, but even in the mainline denominations, I mean, they hold to these values that um, um, the things that we hold dear, those things that are were fought for in the Reformation, the solas, and one of those would be sola scriptura by scripture alone, um, they would they um, deny the divine inspiration of the Bible. They also believe in the social gospel over the gospel of salvation. So instead of preaching, they would meet physical needs to some degree. Um, and the and almost meet those needs instead of pointing to, to man's ultimate need of a savior. <clears throat> and if you read history, <clears throat> um, history not from an evangelical perspective, um, the people that are opposing this modernist view are not painted in a good, good picture. They weren't painted in a good picture during that time either. Um, the leading um, theologian or pastor of the day who was a modernist was a man by the name of Harry Emerson Fosdick. And he had a sermon where he was really concerned, and it was called Shall the Fundamentalist Win? Um, and interestingly enough, he, um, his sermon was distributed by John D. Rockefeller, Jr., well, there's this major influence of the social rich elite in America trying to purport some sort of new value system in this modernist view. Uh, uh, Fosdick said that Christianity did not need the intolerance of what we're going to come to be known as the fundamentalists, but rather the tolerance of diverse belief practiced by enlightened modernists. That's what Christianity needed? No, Christianity needed to know who Jesus was and needed to know that he is the source of true life. Um, so that's the modernists. Um, next, though, there's the response of the fundamentalists. I've changed that now. And your thing is now the response of evangelicalism. <clears throat> okay, so I, I didn't prepare completely for this because I want to talk about it. But to some degree, I want to talk about it next week, but to some degree, there's this overarching idea that evangelicals accept certain doctrines of the Bible, which we'll get into. Um, and then there's groups off of that, one of which would be the fundamentalists. But let's talk first broadly about evangelicals. Okay, so um, the fundamentalists, this, the evangelicals came together because of the need to highlight the most important doctrines of the Bible, okay? So they wrote a book. Actually, they wrote many articles that later were published as a book called the fundamentals, 
It's a testimony of the truth was the subtitle. And these were articles written by evangelical leaders, pastors, educators, clergymen, um, that outlined the um, basic truths of Christianity that we all should hold to. They were not just Baptists. They were not just Calvinists. They were not just Congregationalists. They were the broad spectrum of denominations in America at the time. They wrote 100 articles that defended the basics of the faith that they felt were attacked by the newer forms of thought. Um, it can be called a defense of the fundamental doctrine central to the core of Christianity. And they wrote 100 articles, okay? So my brief little list here isn't going to suffice for what they're about. Um, but here's some of the things. Number one, the Bible as God's inspired word. So they held to the belief in the inerrancy of the Bible that it was perfect. You'll see a pattern here as they reject the ideas of the modernists. The deity and virgin birth of Jesus. The gospel, which is the reality of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and return. What that means for... Oh, we'll get to that in a second. Um, the reality of sin. Salvation comes from God's grace, not human effort. And the church is God's institution. Um, the authors didn't agree on every facet of theology. So, you know, this is like modern day today. There's some, you know, there's conservative evangelicals that come together for basic core things, but they're going to disagree on what we would term non-essentials. Um, um, and they weren't, like I said, from one denomination, but they came together to unite the true faith around those things that were most fundamental. Um, included in this was B.B. Warfield, who was the last in the line of the great Princeton theologians. And it was mostly ignored in academic circles. Imagine that. Um, so the modernists then began calling anybody that held to the fundamentals, the book, a fundamentalist. But in history, though, the fundamentalists are a more narrow group of people um, that not only hold to these fundamentals, but also take on um, some other um, less necessary um, uh, doctrinal views. Um, but it would be more appropriate for us to call the fundamentals, fundamentalists of this time that wrote the fundamentals evangelicals, in my opinion. And one of the key evangelical leaders of the time was a man by the name of J. Gresham Machen, who um, actually began Westminster, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And he wrote a classic book detailing the concern with the modernists called Christianity and Liberalism. His concern was that liberalism was undermining the very foundation of the historic and biblical Christian faith. So 
the modernists wanted to paint this as the modernists versus the fundamentalists. Machen didn't want it to limit it to that. He wanted to paint it as the liberals who are not Protestants because they don't hold to these fundamentals we just outlined against Christianity. Because he saw the very core of Christianity being threatened by this. Um, and Machen himself didn't like being referred to as a fundamentalist. He didn't think he was um, because he did disagree on several points that most fundamentalists did, including dispensational theology, a premillennial eschatology, and then certain societal convic convictions. <clears throat> Machen was a tobacco user, and the fundamentalists um, would have not uh, supported his use of tobacco, so he separated from them, not just for theological reasons, but also for social reasons. Um, <clears throat> but the key issue that the fundamentalists brought, and these I guess these evangelicals at the time, was the liberal assault on the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, so it's almost that the idea of the inerrancy of Scripture became a litmus test for true faith for the fundamentalists. <clears throat> Due to the nature of the debate, because it didn't really happen, there was not a debate in the academic circles, um, these evangelicals as a whole were viewed as anti-intellectual. Um, so you got the evangelicals who are very well-respected scholars, um, but to some degree, some fundamentalists later on would become anti-intellectual so as not to be confused with the intellectualism of the modernists. Does that make sense? So uh, the modernists themselves always painted the picture that anyone holding to these evangelical truths who rejected the idea of reason as the supreme thing um, were anti-intellectual. And to some degree, some fundamentalists became anti-intellectual, just in a, in a way of separating. Um, and then some some degree, some of these uh, fundamentalists at the time could be, it could be a criticism of them for being overly consumed with these doctrinal issues, and that impacted their ability to evangelize the world. Um, and that's something we'll get into next week as we study a little bit deeper in the societal condition of fundamentalism. Um, I made it through my notes. But next week, I'm going to, um, I have like five topics I want to hit, and they somewhat are unified. Um, so it, it, it mainly will be about Christianity in American society. We will hit on the Scopes trial, and the idea of creation, creationism versus evolution. Um, the Protestant um, um, ideas in society, including the idea of prohibition. I kind of want to talk a little bit more about Machen because he is a huge figure. And one point that needs to be brought up is the, the World War One and World War Two bring great evidence of the failings of modernism and their views of mankind. We'll talk about that. And there's two other things, and there's no way we'll get to them, but we'll try. Neo-orthodoxy, which is an idea to kind of blend uh, fundamentalism and modernism. And then also the rise of Pentecostalism, because that occurs in the early 20th century as well. So does anybody have any questions? Yes. Yeah. 
No, I, I would say that it probably was a slow thing to some degree, but the mainline churches had been kind of submitting to the secularization for a while, and I would say that they were pretty accepting of it. Um, and there's a stark, at this time, there's a stark contrast between those, um, those uh, two views. I, I would say it's pretty obvious. Machen was a Presbyterian. That's right. Yeah, I mean, really, the 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 Methodists are completely offline here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Uh, both. Yeah, there was some scholarship there. Um, but they would have been from conservative universities or seminaries um, versus not the, uh, I guess, what the secular society would accept as the model for universities. Um, so, but, I mean, like, Machen didn't write the fundamentals, but he was at Princeton and then went to, left to start Westminster University, or seminary. Yes, yes. Anything else? All right. Well, let's pray and go. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, we praise you for your um, your truth, Lord. Lord, we praise you that you have um, revealed yourself to us in your scriptures. And Lord, that we can truly know you because of that. And Lord, we worship you because of it. And, and Lord, we uh, just pray that you would be with us today. Lord, help us to have great fellowship one within each other. Lord, help us um, bring glory to your name as we talk and speak to each other. In Christ's name we pray, amen.